My proposal is pretty simple. Grow the Social Security payments more slowly for the wealthier, higher income while keeping it for the lower income. And that would really go a long way toward helping the system reach solvency. That is Harvard Business School Senior Lecturer and Brookings Institution Senior Fellow, Robert Posen. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, he explains to Joe and Big Al how progressive indexing can help fix our ailing Social Security system and how the automatic IRA could be the answer for America's retirement savings crisis. No wonder Joe says he might be the smartest man in the world. Also, we've got six ways to survive retirement income shock, recourse versus non-recourse loans, RMDs on annuities in a 401k, the difference between stocks that pay dividends and those that don't, and Aretha Franklin's plans for retirement. <laughs> now, here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Sitting down, and we're in the new studio today. Yes, it feels different. It, it does. It feels a little we're, bit different. We're kind of, it, it it's, it's kind of cool, although we're kind of sitting in a chair with a high table. I kind of feel like a kid again. I can yeah. hardly get up to the top <laughs> of the table. <laughs> My feet are swaying, and I'm 6'5". <laughs> <five. laughs> <laughs> like, wow. Uh, you got to stick around today. Because we have probably the smartest man in the world. I think you could spend a whole segment reading his bio. Oh, Maybe you should start that. Now. We got Robert Posen. He's coming on. He's a senior lecturer at MIT. A uh, guy went to Harvard, got a law degree from Yale, was an executive chairman for MFS Investment Management. Um, he worked at Fidelity. Uh, he was president of Fidelity Management Research. Senior fellow. He is a Rookies. senior fellow. Yeah, he worked for President Bush. He's worked for Mitt Romney. Um, and he agreed to come on our show. Yeah, he's been the chairman of the Securities Exchange Commission. Gosh, we don't even know what to ask him. We'll, we'll do our best. Though. I don't know. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> a little nervous. So, But, um, yeah, hey, you know what I heard on the way into the studio this morning? Right. Is that um, there's a new loan program. Because we talked about student loans the other day or the other week. Yeah, we did. And then that's kind of the coming crisis is that, you know, I think most graduates are coming out with student loans of about 30 some odd thousand dollars. Um, some of them are coming out with, you know, several hundred thousand dollars. Alan, I've seen, you know, young dentists that have, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt and then they try to buy a practice and next thing you know, they're a million dollars in debt. Yeah, I think that was our record. We saw it was 1.2, 1.3 million. Million in debt. debt. And they were just getting started. 30 years old. Yeah. Oh. Wow. Yeah. And then you got a mortgage on top of that. Right. And then you got kids. And then right. it's like, man, you gotta you gotta clean a lot of teeth. You, right? you, you, better, <laughs> you better you better be a good dentist. You better be sharp. <laughs> um, but you can now roll in um in, into your home mortgage some student loan debt. You can. So it, you can refinance that. And there's pros and cons to this. Yeah, let's say. Because there's recourse loans and non-recourse loans. What's the difference, Big Al? Well, recourse loan is when, uh, well, I'll start with a non-recourse loan, is usually what your home loan is, meaning that if you fail to pay, the bank can only collect based upon the equity in your home. They have no recourse to come after you. In a recourse loan, they can come after you because either it's, you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't realize this. When you refinance your home in California, it often often switches from a re- non-recourse loan to a recourse loan. Be careful of that. Really? Mm-hmm. So how, how would you know? Uh, you'd have to look at the fine print. Yeah, who does that? I, I 
personally, I have tried to figure it out by looking at the fine print. I can't, I can't make heads or tails of it. So, okay, let's say I have a mortgage, $500,000. It's non-recourse. I refinance it to get a lower rate right. or maybe to spread out my payments. Maybe I did a 15-year, now I want to do a 30 What or vice versa. Yeah, and I, and I probably have mortgage lenders saying, Clopine, you don't you're, know what you're, you're talking yeah, you're, about. Yeah, you're a CPA. But, we'll tell but you. It, it, I will say whether that's true <laughs> right now or not, that's what I'd heard. That's what I've heard over time. I don't know if it's changed or not. So that's news up to date. Fact check. Fact check. False fake, news. Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> we we got we to gotta fact check our own broadcast. It's, it's terrible. Awful. It's awful. <laughs> anyway, strike that. But, but, four minutes in. But I do, I do know the difference. The recourse loan, the bank can come after you personally uh, to collect the debt. All right. So... Uh, with student loans, there's there's different programs, so you got to be careful with that because if you are running into problems, then you can do like income based loans that could reduce your overall payment. Let's say if you lose your job or you are underemployed or something like that, where you were making maybe one hundred fifty thousand, you lose that job, now you're making sixty thousand dollars. Right? right, you can kind of readjust the loans. And That's things true. Of that there is those provisions. That, yeah. yeah. So so you don't want to just. I guess look solely at rate, you know, and I think that's what a lot of times we do when we're looking at mortgages is just like, what is the lowest rate? But there's also some different, you know, I guess areas that you want to make sure that you focus yeah, on. Yeah, in other words, there, there are actually some benefits of having it be student loan debt as opposed to home equity debt. Yeah. Not to mention the home equity debt, if you refinance your home to pay off a student loan, well, that's, that's not a purchase money mortgage interest and may not be deductible. So there you go. That I do know, Jeff. I don't even have to fact check that. That's that's a fact. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's all I got for this for this segment. <laughs> for this well, I got something. You, you like Aretha Franklin? Right? I do love Aretha yeah. Franklin. Respect. Yes, R E S E P C T. Yeah. <laughs> I got no respect for your spelling ability. Anyway, <laughs> you can listen to the song a few more times and you'll get it. Anyway, so she's retiring this year. She is. 75 years old. All right. She's, she's uh, I guess she's she's going to do one more album with um, Stevie Wonder. Going to collaborate with Stevie Wonder, which is cool. But so she's going to retire. All right. And so what do you think her perception or, or conception of retirement is? She's going to open up a little club in Detroit, downtown Detroit, and uh, for musicians to perform. And she said, she said from time to time, I, I will sing there, of course, right? Because she's still... Loves well, to yeah, sing. because she's going to draw people in Detroit, <laughs> <laughs> right? Have you ever been to Detroit? Yeah, I have been to Detroit. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I, I, of all things, I was there in 1984, roughly a week after the Tigers beat the Padres in the World Series, and it was interesting to say the, the least. Yeah, I, well, I'm from Minneapolis, and our good friend Matt Horsley's from Detroit. Right. So I loved. I, I had a really good time in Detroit. Yeah. It was. It's it's improved now, right? Yeah. Because well, I saw it in '84, and well, it was. Uh, I probably saw it ten years ago. Well, seven. Well, it's better than '84. Maybe? Better than me. Yeah. <laughs> you saw it in what 2007? Yeah. So ten years it was, but yeah, there were yeah. still a lot of homes that were boarded up, and there were some kind of really? sketchy areas. But I think that's with every, you know, yeah, big city. Yeah. So. And and I know Detroit uh, more than many big cities. It's it's been kind of a one industry town with automobiles, which has been somewhat of a shrinking industry. <clears throat> Here's what you don't want to do if you're just not Aretha Franklin. 
is to open up a nightclub when you retire. <laughs> is, that, is that the new plan? That's what everyone should do? Well, no, that's what you should not do. Should not do. Got it. Yes, because that is probably one of the ch- most challenging businesses right. is you know the restaurant or bar business. Yeah. You know, how many... My uncle had a small bar in Minnesota, right? Yeah. And that's why he retired with maybe $20,000 to his name. So you're saying it's not the most lucrative way to go? It, well, yes. Most of them fail. Most of them fail. Yeah. But I mean, now, it's, why, why is that? Because, I mean, the, the, the markup on the drinks is humongous. Yeah, but I mean, you get people that like to change venues, you know? Right. I lived downtown San Diego for many years. And so they need uplifts. And, you know, the hottest bar one year. It's something. You know, yeah. People are fickle. Right. You know, so it's just like, yeah, well, no, I'm kind of over that. I want to go to this one. And and so all these different nightclubs need to spend millions just to rebrand rebrand themselves because. Um, like I know what the heck I'm talking about, but <laughs> this whole segment is just. <laughs> but hopefully, there's some humor here. Yes. It's not much information. <laughs> but, but you know, I think a lot of times it's like, okay, well, I worked nine to five, I did the grind, and then I'm retiring, and right. I'm going to follow my passion or do something that I always wanted to do and open, open up and, a little um, bed and breakfast. Yes, I'm going to open up maybe a little tavern, sure. maybe a wine bar. Yeah. And it doesn't, you, doesn't work out. Not necessarily. Yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah, you got the big house, though. Bed and breakfast might work oh out. Oh, my God. Here we go again <laughs> with the house. <laughs> conspicuous, conspicuous consumption. <laughs> so if you really want to learn something, stick around, because Robert Posen is about to tell us how this country could fix both our retirement savings problems and the Social Security system. In the meantime, if you want to learn about tax planning, investing, retirement planning, Social Security, estate planning, small business strategies, Medicare, and much more, remember to visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com after you listen to the podcast. We've got white papers, articles, webinars, over 400 video clips, retirement classes, the works. It is a veritable treasure trove of information just waiting for you at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Alan, we probably have one of the smartest guests that have ever came on our show. I know, and you're going to introduce him, and you've got, what, a couple pages? I, I'm nervous. <laughs> we got Robert Posen on. He's a, a, currently a senior lecturer at MIT. Yes. The gentleman went to Harvard. Got right. a law school from Yale. Wow. He's worked at MFS, Fidelity. Um, he's tried to fix Social Security. Right. There's many, many things that this gentleman has done, and now he graces us here at Your Money, Your Wealth. Wow. Oh, but Bob, it's a real pleasure to have you. And um, at the break, we were kind of talking about a, a few different topics. And Alan and I have talked about this for many, many years. We've been doing the radio show here now for over 10 years. But if you take a look at two people, one has a 401k plan at work, the other one does not have a 401k plan at work. They make the same amount of income. And if you fast forward 20 years, the person with the 401k is going to have a 12 hundredfold more dollars saved for retirement than the individual that doesn't. What is going on and why can't we just fix this thing to make sure that everyone is is working with the same playing field? Yeah, it's a great question and it all comes down to uh, inertia. When people have a 401k at work and it's really easy for them to contribute, they do contribute especially if their employer matches them. But there's something like 40% of all U.S. workers, which is 70 million workers, who have no retirement plan at work. 
Now, in theory, they could go themselves, fill out an application, and contribute each month by, you know, with some financial institution. But they never get around to it. If you ask them, they all say, yeah, I'd like to say retirement, but it's too much of a hassle. That's what I mean by the power of inertia. So we, what we'd like to do is to have employers this, who employ the 70 million hook up their payroll systems to any reasonable, qualified IRA provider, and then to send in money, uh, check off as part of the payroll process. But if the employee doesn't want to do it, he or she can opt out at any point. And what we know is that something in between 60 and 80% of all these employees will choose not to opt out. That is, they'll be okay with that money automatically going to an IRA. But if you ask them to go and fill out the application and do everything themselves, they wouldn't get around to it. Now, as we were talking, California and Oregon and several states have tried to bring in this sort of program, uh, but and there were some rules coming out of the Labor Department to expedite these programs, but in the end, Congress decided they wanted, they were against having each state do their own thing. And that's a perfectly legitimate reason, but why can't we have a federal program? We should have an exemption for small employers who are only uh, 20 or fewer employees, say, and we should make clear the employers are not required to contribute anything to these retirement. They're not going to have complicated ERISA fiduciary duties. All they have to do is connect their payrolls. And we could easily have this done on a federal level and then it would be uniform wherever you went, whatever state you went, whatever place you went, it'd all be the same. And, and it's really a good idea and it would probably take out of those 70 people who don't have any retirement plan, we'd probably get something like half of them, 35 million people uh, now having retirement plans. That would be a huge step forward. What happened, well, so the, the Obama administration put together the MIRA, and that just folded, um, what, a couple of weeks ago. What happened there? What, um, you know, for, uh, well, the, the, the MIRA was, was sort of too small. It basically said to people, it was geared to people who were only gonna save like $50 a month or $25 a month, and uh, they could only put their money into some special treasury bonds. And there was no employer mandate. The employer could choose to get into this program, but almost no employers did. And most of the participants thought, these are such small amounts, it's really not worth it. And then other participants said, you know, I'd rather be in a stock fund or something else. I don't want to be just in treasury bills or treasury bonds. So it just, it, it just never got it off the ground. If we want this program to work, we need a federal program that has uniform requirements. But we need to say to all employers who have more than, say, 20 or 25 employees, you're required just to hook up your payroll system with a qualified financial institution. That's all. No contributions, no risk of fiduciary duties, nothing like that. Just hook up, and then if the employees want to opt out, they can. No problem. So the so reason... That the, my IRA showed that without an employer requirement, 
and with these very small amounts, it's not going to go anywhere. So with what you're saying is, all right, well, the, the reason why these small employees or, or employers do not offer these 401k plans or a defined contribution plan is just they don't want the responsibility to be a fiduciary under the ERISA rules. They don't necessarily want to put the cost together to put these plans up. Um, they don't maybe um, can't afford necessarily to match any contributions. But what, right, you're, but what you're suggesting is that all they got to do is just plug in to a, a, another program where it wouldn't cost the small employer or even a large employer any dime out of their pocket, but it would give the employee an option now to go direct payroll deducted pre-tax or after-tax, depending on what they wanted to do, into this plan that they then any qualified, let's say, 401k provider. Yeah, and so really the provider would be an IRA provider, not actually a 401k provider, and the provider, a bank or a mutual fund company, they would do all the work. As you say, the only thing the employer would do, they'd have a little, little startup cost at the beginning just to connect their payroll system. Most employers with more than 20 or 25 employees are on some sort of electronic payroll system, whether it be ADP or something like that. And so it's just a little bit of administrative work at the beginning, and that's all. That's all. We can't expect these employers to, to... do a lot of stuff that cost them a lot of money and make a lot of matches, but hooking up the, their own payroll system, it's not a very big deal. Yeah, and, and and so we talked before you came on, and California was pretty far along with this program, and I think Oregon was even further along, just really about ready to implement it, which to me makes a lot of sense. And then the federal government came out and said, no, you can't do it. And 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 I and I guess I understand maybe taking your your reasoning because the fact that it needs to be a, a federal needs to be consistent, you know that that does make a certain amount of sense. But when they repealed it, there was there was no mention of of what they were going to offer. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Part of the other reason is there's a technical legal problem. It's called preemption, that there's a part of ERISA, that's the federal pension law, that preempts uh, various state laws relating to retirement plans. So there's a practical question and there's a technical issue, and that's why it gets really involved with all these uh, legal issues and litigation, and that's Obama tried to change that through a labor department reg, but that reg was now abolished by Congress. And you're right, it's perfectly okay for Congress to abolish that reg because they don't want each state going off and doing its own thing, but we never heard any federal legislation. And over the last five or 10 years, there have been lots of senators and congressmen who have co-sponsored this bill, which is sometimes called the automatic IRA. And actually, the two guys who originally put it together, one was from the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative foundation, and the other one was from Brookings, which is a more liberal-oriented foundation. So both of them uh, were backing this. So this should be a bipartisan issue. I know there aren't a lot of bipartisan issues left in the United States, but this is really one that should be bipartisan. There's bipartisan, and then there's the president and his own party. We're told that the biggest tax cut ever is on its way. Will it happen this year? The president and the GOP remain divided on a number of key policy questions. How might income tax, estate tax, and business tax change? Visit the White Paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download the White Paper, Tax Reform, Trump versus House GOP, to find out. Are your tax strategies at risk? 
get year-end tax planning tips that can help you stay on track in the midst of all this uncertainty. Download the Tax Reform White Paper to find out more. Visit the White Paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Joe Anderson and Big Al hanging out. We're talking to Robert Posen. Uh, he's a senior lecturer at MIT, Harvard grad, Yale grad, Worked, um, served under President Bush's commission to strengthen Social Security, Fidelity, MFS, and uh, so much more. Bob. Uh, Bob, let me ask you another question. So with an IRA, you can only put $5,500 in, but a 401k, 18000 And of course, the catch-up, you can do an extra $1,000 if you're over 50 for an IRA, but an extra $6,000 for a 401k. Can we get these uniform? Can we get these the same? Shouldn't they be the same? Well, I I think uh, given the current system, we want to have 401ks be a little more generous because we want to encourage employers to offer 401k plans. The second thing is if you look at the statistics in most companies, there aren't a lot of people who get up to 12,000, 15,000, 18,000. Quite frankly, you know, it's like the best is the enemy of the good. If we could get people to actually put 5,000 a year, it'd be a big step in the right direction. So, yeah, maybe we should change those requirements, but um, in fact, there are very few people who max out. And so I personally feel let's, let's get the automatic IRA going and if we could increase the uh, contribution limits for that, that's great. But, uh, you know, first things first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you, you look at, uh, and, and Alan and I have been yelling in these microphones for 10 years telling people to maximize their 401k plans. And Bobby just kind of burst my yeah, bubble. Yeah, turns I guess. out no one's, <laughs> no, no, no one's no, listening. No one's listening to us. <laughs> Well, it's because we only have three listeners. Yeah, so I'm going to say, just put 3000 in. <laughs> Damn it. So, <laughs> just put a... Yeah, a, a yeah. Oh, if man. If we get people to put 5000 in, it would be a big step in the right direction. And what's interesting is that people have said for quite a long time that millennials, and people define it differently, but roughly between 20 and 35 years old, that they aren't saving at all, but... Interestingly, the new statistics show that they're starting to save more, and that's a really good sign, probably as we pull out of the financial crisis. But what's what's a little disturbing is they're not saving so much for retirement. They're saving for nice vacations, nice restaurants, good PT, you know, this sort of thing. So we really want these people to save, but we'd like them not to quite use it all up, you know, and, and to think about their future. It's a little hard when somebody's 25, but uh, that's why we need to educate them, as you're trying to, to say, if you do this regularly before you know it, you've got a big uh, nest egg. And we really, we really need to educate young people uh, that this is important. It's, it's hard. It's hard for people to think that far ahead. But as you point out, you know, if you save $5,000 a year for 40 years you and invest it, you're going to do pretty well, and you're going to get some really good stuff for retirement. And if you don't, I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen in the long run, but 
We don't want to see a lot of people really left out in the cold without enough money for retirement. That wouldn't be too good. I got uh, one last question for you. So in 2001 and 2002, you served under President Bush's uh, commission to strengthen Social Security. Right now, the latest uh, the, the, the latest numbers come out that the, oh, the, 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 the trust fund, the OASI fund, will be completely de- uh, depleted in 2035, and then maybe 70, 75%-ish would still be able to be funded. My question is this, is that I think what I hear of why is this age wave, that you have the baby boomers, you know, you got 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day for the next, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 years, whatever it is, and they're drawing a lot of the money, only a couple people putting into the system per one person putting out, and then when it started, there was like 42 people putting in the system. But if I look at the largest generation, it's the millennials. The millennials is the biggest generation that we have. So as they continue to age and put into the, you know, in, in build the workforce and still contribute to FICA tax, I don't understand the math because if, if the millennials were a lot smaller number, then I could see how the math makes sense. But if they're a lot larger than the baby boomers, how does all this work? Well, first of all, uh, it all defined, depends how you define these groups. But the baby boomers for years were the largest group going through the system. Millennials may be a little larger, but remember, these uh, baby boomers have been contributing and they've had a schedule of benefits that's been too generous in the sense that the system can't uh, uh, handle it. And so, as you say, I think it's actually now 2032. If we do nothing, then Social Security benefits will be cut across the board by about 25%. So I've come up with a proposal which is called progressive indexing it. You can look it up, but here it's very simple. It says, right now, we give people more. Their schedule of benefits initially, not after they get Social Security, but initially, we take your average career earnings and we increase it by more than the consumer price index. We increase it by what's called the wage index. And so the schedule uh, is giving people more than the consumer price index. And so my proposal is pretty simple. You take the lower third of people for whom Social Security is their major, in many cases, their sole retirement, and you keep the same schedule for that lower third. But the top third, let's say people making more than eighty or $90,000 a year, you say to those people, from now on, we're going to give you price indexing, not wage indexing. And it turns out that what may seem like a technical difference makes a huge difference, and it would save something for the system like four or five trillion dollars. And that would make the system not totally solid, but it would last a lot longer, enough so that you would have time for the millennials to come in and 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 su- provide enough support. So here's the main thing. Over long periods of time, wages rise faster than consumer prices by about 1%. That's how people have money to save. So over 35 or 40 years, it's a 40% difference. In my opinion, you can't make the people who are totally dependent on Social Security, the lower earners, people making 30, 40, 50,000, we can't uh, cut back their Social Security benefits. But think about all those people with 80, 90, 100,000, 
Those people all have 401ks. They all have IRAs, which are tax subsidized. So that's my proposal to basically grow <coughs> the social security payments more slowly for the wealthier, higher income while keeping it for the lower income. And that would really go a long way toward helping the system uh, reach solvency. Uh, we need to have these millennials be in the system for another 30 or 40 years before we get the full benefit of it. If the system goes bankrupt in 2032, it's not going to help us very much. We got educated. I, I should also say that this proposal for progressive indexing was endorsed by both the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal uh, in about 2000. Seven, two thousand eight, two thousand seven. So it's got it's got some bipartisan support in it, and it's a fair thing. I mean, that is, it's fair for because uh, we spend what's called the tax expenditure budget. We subsidize IRAs and four hundred one ks to over tune of over a hundred billion dollars a year, and that subsidy goes to this top third of earners mainly. So we can slow the growth of their benefits; they would still grow at the same consumer price index that we have now, but uh, uh, they would grow less slowly than, uh, less quickly, excuse me, than the, than the schedule, and we protect uh, the people who really need it. So that's my simple solution to Social Security, but uh, Social Security is such a political nightmare that people don't want to touch it. <laughs> We're talking to Robert Posen. Bob, I really appreciate it. Um, you can find Bob writes articles on the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review. He's written a few books. In 2008, he wrote a book, Too Big to Save, How to Fix the U.S. Financial System. We could spend probably an hour. We didn't on even that. get into yeah, that. We didn't get into that. And then the fund industry, <laughs> how your money is managed. Hey, Bob, where can people find you besides those um, areas that I just mentioned? Okay, I, I have a web page called bobposen.com. Uh, and my last name is spelled P like in Peter O-Z-E-N. And about two years ago, I wrote a book on how to improve your own personal productivity. It's called Extreme Productivity. Boost your results, reduce your hours. So that's a really, uh, uh, been, it's been translated now, that book, into 10 languages. And it's really a practical, short book. And a lot of people find it very helpful. Bob, I really appreciate your time. Um, this has been a true pleasure of Alan I's, and um, hope to get you on again, and we can dive into the how to fix this financial system we got. <laughs> <laughs> we might need to allow an hour on that. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, all right, buddy. That sounds great. We got to take a break. Yeah, show's called Your Money or What. Okay. We'll be back in just a second. I'm glad that we've got brilliant financial minds like Robert Posen thinking of solutions to our political nightmares like Social Security, since it and Medicare are among the most important issues for anyone approaching retirement. If you or someone you know is turning 65, it's time to start navigating the Medicare maze so you can choose the right plan for you at the right cost. The Understanding Medicare video series, featuring two more brilliant financial minds, certified financial planners Joe Anderson and Jason Thomas, will be available to watch on demand beginning Thursday. Thursday, August 31st. Sign up to watch it for free at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Learn the basics of Medicare, how to bridge the gap to Medicare, and 11 common Medicare mistakes to avoid. Just visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and sign up to watch the Understanding Medicare video series for free on demand.
Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture in handy bullet point format. This week, six ways to survive retirement income shock. So there was a a recent uh, paper study done by the National Endowment for Financial Education, co-authored by Professor Teresa Ghilarducci, which I... I love saying that, so that's why I brought it up. Got it. Anyway, so here's a couple things they found in that survey before we get to the six ways to survive the shock is is by the time men reach age 66 to 70, I'm just reading what it says. It doesn't say women. I'm just reading what it says. By the time men reach age 66 to 70, 96% have experienced at least four such episodes of an income shock. Hmm which they didn't really describe. Well, I guess they kind of did. Is a shock good or bad? Bad. Losing your job, um, helping parents with assisted living. Your child um, may come back, move back because they can't afford, you know, can't find a job. You may get divorced. Lots of ways to become financially shocked. So then they also said 61% of all workers, uh, I suppose men and women aged 25 to 70, experienced at least one episode, I guess that's an income shock, in which they lost their earnings for an entire year. All right. 61%. 61%. Have you ever lost your earnings for a year? Never. No, me neither. Knock on one. Yeah, right? <laughs> but I don't think I ever would. If I'd lost my job, I would get another job. Yeah. I, it, didn't, it wouldn't matter. I would, right. if I have to... Do whatever to, yeah. to get. Would you work it, at Home Depot? I you, could. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I'm, I, I'm not very mechanically <laughs> well, inclined. Would work in the plumbing department. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you, you want a pipe? Oh, well, we got the but, pipe section. Help yourself. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a, yeah. Sure. It's a, it's a self-serve. Yep. I. Yeah, I would be really bad at Home Depot. <laughs> so anyway, what can you do to survive a shock? All right. So if you have a economic shock, here's your tips. Yeah. And. Every one of these tips is is being prepared before the shock. So, so it was a little misleading. Now this is the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the idea is to, uh, what can you do, do to survive a shock? Well, then you need to prepare. So let's start with the first one, which is fully fund your 401k type plans. It could be a 403b. could be a... Um, what a four three four zero one a just a defined contribution yeah plan. defined contribution yeah. your retirement plan we don't have to go into each no, one no no <laughs> but I, here, here's the deal because I think sometimes we get complacent and you, we only have just a finite number of years of the income that you're currently making. And you want to make sure that every year that you take a look at that income, and are you utilizing it the, the best that you possibly can right. in all aspects of your life? It's not save every last penny of it, but yeah, are you, you know, I think we spend first, save later, and that is the wrong methodology. Yeah, and I think the tendency, Joe, is we're in our 20s. I mean, each decade, you can sort of understand it. In our 20s, we're paying off our student debt. We get into our 30s, and gosh, we want a little bit better car, and we want to save for a house, and then the kids come along, all that expense, and the, oh, now we got to start saving for college, and you wake up and you're in your 50s with not much in savings. Right. The point is to do this a little bit differently. Instead of saving last, save first. Right. Just 
kind of get it on autopilot. And that's the really nice thing if you have an employer that has a 401k or 403b because it comes right out of your paycheck. You don't even have to think about it. That's the best way to do it because most people, what happens is, no, I'm not going to put money in the 401k. At the end of the month, I'm going to see what's extra and I'm going to save that. And you know how this works. There's nothing left over. You know, there's been so many times that I'm trying to help people with their overall cash flow. And I used to use a strategy where in a sense of, um, all right, if you refinance your mortgage, maybe you throw in a couple of high interest rate debt inside the mortgage, you push the payments out, that's going to free up a couple thousand dollars a month, and then take that couple thousand dollars a month and throw it into your 401k plan, Mm -hmm. right? Because right now, all their access cash flow is going to either high credit card debt, maybe a car loan, their mortgage, uh, maybe they have a home equity line and everything else, right? And then so then I'm thinking, hey, I'm a really good financial advisor. I understand numbers. And, you know, if you take a look at this, this is going to free up X amount of dollars. And so if you save that, that's also going to build wealth. Yeah, I know you might pay a little bit more extra interest over the long term because you're pushing some of this debt out that should have been paid off in five uh, five years. You're, you're kind of refinancing it out over 30. But then if you look at the time value of money of those excess cash flow dollars that were developed by doing the strategy, and if you saved it at a certain rate of return, you would make out far ahead. Yeah, so on paper, it sounds great. On paper, you're a genius. Right. Guess what? In real life... It's not so easy. It doesn't happen. <laughs> because it you got... It never fails. You got more cash flow and you spend it. it. Because there's a reason why they have the credit card debt. There's a reason why there's a home equity loan. There's a reason why there's a 401k loan. There's a reason why, you know, there's very little savings to begin with is because it, it's the spending. And so you say, all right, well, we could free this up and it frees up a few thousand dollars and then three months later you see them and guess what oh well we bought the new car and oh well we needed the needed the new kitchen and it's like okay now you're even in worse shape i just blew you up i did not help you at all i just destroyed your financial life in that case you would have been better just paying off the debt faster exactly but and that's so when it comes to 401k uh then it's like it's automatic right so just set it up you don't even think about it because you get used to seeing your net pay and in and most cases, probably these days, most people, it's a direct deposit, shows up in your checking account, mm-hmm. and that's what you're used to spending. You just get used to that, right? And then as you have raises, you keep increasing that percentage till you max out. By the way, the maximum right now is $18,000 per year. And if you're over 50, you can add another $6,000, what they call a catch up, catch up. So you can do $24,000. And there's yet another a bonus, I guess, on a 401k is the employer's more often than not will match at least some of what you put in. So you put in a dollar, they put in a dollar. They're not going to put in $18,000, but maybe the first three or $4,000, they'll match it with you. So at at an absolute minimum, you want to contribute up to the full match because that's free money. Right. But here's the problem is that I I heard, read, saw, whatever, um, that there's a large percentage of our population that if something happened in their financial life that cost more than $500, it would blow them up. Yes. Yeah, and that's, that's, we see that all the time. Right? They don't necessarily, they couldn't handle a $500, mm-hmm. let, let's say, uh, you know, a medical bill. Right. Or, or they got a, a vet bill. The tires wore out. On the Whatever. Car. Yeah. It's like 500 bucks. They don't. They don't have it. Right. We're telling you to save eighteen grand. Yeah. Right. Right. 
What's the it's next the one? The next one is, it's not, it's related. A uh, fund, a Roth 401k or oh, a Roth IRA. Wow, this is genius. <laughs> <laughs> but why would you do a regular versus a Roth? Well, you would get the tax deduction for a regular. Um, yeah. You do not get the tax deduction for the Roth. The Roth IRA, however, grows 100% tax-free, or Roth 401k. Um, I don't know. It's, we, we can debate this all day long. I am just, I'm Roth uh, 98%. Because, Roth 98? Yes. Wow, I think okay. In, in most cases, for most people, I don't care what tax bracket you're in, I, I think the Roth IRA is a better way to go. I yeah. honestly do, because I get it that you do not get the tax deduction. But if unless there's people are saving a lot of money outside of their retirement accounts. You're right. Right. And, and they have control over their taxes in the future. Yeah, but no, what, what I mean by that is that most of the savings that Al and I see that you have all accumulated is in your retirement accounts. So your IRAs, 401ks, and defined contribution plans, right? You got millions of dollars in those plans, but you have very little money outside. There's very little money in a non-qualified or, or brokerage account. And then you might have accumulated a little bit of cash, but most of the dollars that you've ever invested is in the retirement accounts. If a disciplined investor is maxing out their 401k plan, also saving additional dollars outside of their retirement accounts, then yes, that's the 2% that I'm talking about that then I would say go pre-tax. Because a lot of times... They're just saving into the 401k plan, right? They're getting the tax deduction, but there is no other savings. So what that means is that the tax deduction that they're getting, they're not saving the deduction. So why don't you force save it and just go after tax, right? And then everything is going to come out to you tax free. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and sign up for a free financial assessment with a certified financial planner. Find out if you're on track for retirement. How much money will you need? What social security strategies are available to you? How much income can you get from your portfolio? Stress test that portfolio and find out. Make sure your retirement strategy is aligned with your retirement goals. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Well, we're talking about six ways to survive retirement income shocks, and mostly it's about preparation before an income shock. Income shock is uh, losing your job, it's getting divorced, it's uh, having the kids move back in home after college when you weren't expecting it, it's having to care for the parents when you weren't expecting it, that sort of thing. So another one, and this is kind of basic stuff, but I think it's important to talk about, is make sure you have a liquid emergency savings. Uh, and a lot of people that we see that... Uh, uh, do you have the um, the self due dil- diligence to save the, the the ability to save? They tend to invest everything, and yet they don't have anything in in liquid savings. And I I had a number of people this back a few years ago, but a number of people told me in the two thousands to all the way to about two thousand seven, even two thousand eight, I don't need emergency savings because I got a home equity loan. Mm-hmm. And what happened during the real estate crisis? The banks pulled the home equity loans. That Actually happened to me too. They they said, "All right, no more, right. no more. What you have on it, you got to pay off, and we're not giving you any more." There goes your emergency cash reserves. Everything else is invested. The stock market went down, whatever, 30, 40, 50 percent, whatever you were invested in, and now you you've really got no cushion. Right. And uh, and, and I think for me, Joe, the the Great Recession was a great reminder as to why you actually need some very boring liquid savings, CD, cash, that sort of thing. Right. I think it just takes one time to 
shock you, it would seem, to say, all right, well, here, I don't want to live through that again. You know how much financial stress that put on myself, on my family, and how you felt during that time, right. you know? And it's like, but I'm not, you know, we're not trying to put fear in saying, hey, you know, it's going to happen again. But there's going to be volatility. You know, volatility kind of came back a little bit this week in the overall markets. Right. And we've had a very low volatile market. And I think that breeds overconfidence. And when you have overconfidence in your investment ability, that usually brings problems. And so just be careful. If you're in retirement, close to retirement, if you don't have a strategy to create income from the portfolio, if you don't have an investment strategy that has the liquid safe assets that you can easily draw from, versus now we're seeing a lot of you know, 60, 70-year-olds that have a portfolio that looks like it should be someone in their 30s because of the greed factor, right? And then, yeah, you're right, Al. I mean, we would run into so many people in retirement that it's like, all right, well, I have everything in my retirement accounts. Everything is, you know, fully invested in fairly volatile, high growth type investments. And they're using their home equity line as kind of a cash buffer. Right. And then all of a sudden they pull that home equity line and then now the market's down. And now you have to sell stocks that are down 10, 20, 30, whatever percent. You don't want to sell stocks when they're down. Right. You want to buy more. But you don't necessarily have any mechanisms to do that because of how your portfolio is actually structured. And I get it. Everyone hates diversification in an up market because you're looking at whatever you hear on the media of like, here's the S&P 500 is up again, all-time highs, all-time highs, the Dow Jones. Those are just small slivers of the overall market, right? What happens when that goes down? We load up on things that are doing well. But when that goes down, everything is loaded up on that. So there's no way to buy more of it or to rebalance the portfolio or to create the income that you need. So just now is a really good time to take a look to say what am I doing do I have a strategy in place right I think so and and I think a lot a lot of financial planners will say to have six months of living expenses in an emergency fund so you spend a hundred thousand dollars a year six months half of that that's fifty thousand dollars some financial planners will say three months which honestly partly the reason they do that is because when you say six months it sounds too hard so at least you know some is better than nothing, right? And but it also, Joe, it depends upon your your ability to earn income. It's your human capital. Human capital. So for example, if you work for the government, really safe job, you've been there thirty years, and you got a great pension, probably three months is enough for yeah. you, right? Or you're a contractor, you never know where your next job is going to be. Maybe a year or Two even years. more. Two years is, is would be more appropriate. So it just kind of depends upon the job. Right. And then if you're in retirement, then we have a, a totally different perspective because now you need to live off the assets that you've accumulated. And so then it's figuring out, all right, well, here, what is the, the you have to stress test the portfolio, if you will. You want to look at different downturns of the markets in past and say, what is my recovery time of the portfolio to get it? back to where it was before the crisis happened or before the correction happened or the big bear market happened. So is that going to take me 12 months to recover? Is it going to take me 36 months to recover? You know, if you look at the, you know, last downturn, right, it, it took some people five years to totally recover. But if they were taking dollars and distributions from those assets as well, I mean, some of them may, you know, still be on that road to recovery. So we look at, all right, well, here, maybe it's a five-year cushion that you have in capital, 
that is in treasury bonds, right? Tips or treasury inflated protected securities, really short-term high-grade corporates or things like that, that you know that are going to be your safe haven when the markets are a little bit more volatile or, or, or fluctuating on you, that you don't have to sell them if you're living off your assets. But don't get confused of saying, all right, I want everything in safe investments as I retire, because you still have a 30-year retirement. You still need growth in the portfolio. Yeah, you do, Joe. And, and we're talking about how to survive income shocks. And, and one is considering your home equity. And we've talked about this before, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily want to dip into their home equity, and we would generally agree with that statement. But sometimes there's not a lot of choice, and that is for many of you. It's an asset. It's a, it's it's one of your biggest assets. In some cases, it is your biggest asset. And if you do have an income shock, if you're if you're one of these pr- people that it gets forced retirement earlier than you expected, or you're you you're out of work for a year or longer and having trouble getting back to work, there always is that home to to fall back on. And in some cases, even though it's not first choice, at least it's there, right? So you can downsize, you can sell the home and access some of that equity. You can borrow against it, although that can be difficult if you don't have an income. If you have a home equity loan already set up, you can borrow against that. But when you're in your 60s, 62 to be exact, or older, you can do a reverse mortgage. And we're not really here to, to I mean, we can't don't have enough time to go into all the pros and cons of reverse mortgages, and, and we don't sell them. We're independent. But I can tell you... We're not... The, mortgage broker. No. We, we proved that in that first segment. Yeah, we did. But it, yeah, we did prove it. But here's what I can tell you as a as a fee-only fiduciary advisor is the reverse mortgages, in my opinion, are better now than they used to be. And for many people, I think they're worth a look. In terms of supplementing retirement income, particularly if you're in Southern California or a, or a place that has a, a property that's very expensive and you have a lot of home equity, for many of you, it, it, it's not necessarily the, the asset of last less choice. Joe and Big Al are not mortgage brokers. They have proven that. But recently, they spoke at length with retirement researcher and American College professor Wade Fowle about banking on your house in retirement on the Your Money, Your Wealth television show. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and learn more about reverse mortgages, the home equity line of credit, or HECM, and other options for utilizing what is likely your largest asset, your home, as an income stream in retirement. Dr. Fowle, Joe, and Big Al discuss why reverse mortgages no longer deserve a bad reputation. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and watch the episode Banking on Your House in Retirement. And hey, don't blame us if you end up binge watching hours of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show while you're there. Now it's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com or send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or ellen.clopine at purefinancial.com. Ooh, here's the title of the email. What are the pros and cons of stocks that pay dividends? I would like to be able to tell the difference between stocks that pay dividends and those that don't. First off, how can you find out whether or not a certain stock pays dividend? Second, is there a specific reason that some stocks pay dividends and others do not? What factors contribute to this? Finally, what are the reasons for and against investing in stocks with dividend payments? That's a that's a great question. I I'm I'm not how do you find out the ones that, that pay dividends? Well, let me let's paint this with a broad brush first. Okay. And then we can kind of get in the minutia. Okay. Here's what my advice would be for you. You want to invest in all stocks, paying dividends or non-dividend paying stocks. 
there's certain characteristics of dividend paying stocks. They're a little bit more mature, right? Versus growth or, you know, uh, companies that are still in very much of a growth phase. Because what a dividend is, it's just basically a distribution to the shareholders of cash. The companies do their profit or, you know, their books and say, here was the profitability. We need to retain some of these earnings for future growth in the overall organization. Maybe we want to hire more people. We want to put more technology in. We want to expand. We need to have more infrastructure. We need whatever, right? And then they look and say, okay, well, we're going to pay this dividend after that. And in some cases, that dividend um, yield is somewhat flat unless something bad happens in the overall company um, where the stock price blows up or maybe the economy where the entire market kind of goes down. But those companies are kicking out dividends. If you have a small business, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you pay yourself a salary. And then at the end of the year, you're going to take a dividend of whatever profits are left in the overall organization. Big organizations do the exact same thing. It's just on a larger scale. Other companies do not issue dividends because they're reinvesting everything back into the overall organization. However, that doesn't mean it's a good or bad thing. Okay, so there's not pros and cons. You can create your own synthetic dividend. This is where people really mess up because they want that dividend payment. So they're just going to focus solely on high dividend paying companies or high dividend paying stocks because they want that income. The same, and then here's what the confusing part is, is that once that dividend is distributed, the stock price goes down exactly how much the dividend was paying out. So if you got a $10 stock and they pay you a dollar dividend, the ex-dividend date goes to $9 a share because they're distributing assets out to the shareholder. People will say, no, that doesn't happen to my stock, my stock. And it's like, no, there's no magic beans here. That's, that's what happens. So let's say you have a company that does not issue a dividend. It's $10 a share, but you, sh you sell one share. That's $1. So then you just take that and spend it. And then all of a sudden you have nine shares. It's the same, same, the same thing happens. It's the same output. It's the same outcome. So don't be solely focused on dividend paying stocks or solely focused on non-dividend paying stocks. You want to make sure that you have a broad diversified portfolio to make sure that you're accomplishing your overall goals. I think Al would agree is that a lot of retirees and a lot of people that come into our office at first, they might have that single focus of saying, hey, you know what? I need income. So what dividend paying stock should I be? getting into or is there a high dividend yield ETF or exchange traded fund, index fund, mutual fund or um, whatever account. Just be careful with that mentality because that could burn you uh, because you might be taking on way too much concentrated risk in that small sector of the overall you know marketplace. Uh, I couldn't agree more, Joe, because when you're looking at dividend paying stocks, as you said, they tend to be more mature companies, which is which are great. Johnson Johnson, other companies like that pay dividends. and and But it's only one kind of company. You tend to be, have the largest U.S. companies paying dividends and you're missing out on the whole range of companies. It turns out the smaller companies, actually, if you look at total return, which is increase in the market uh, plus dividends, right. to so to it, total return is higher over, over the long term for smaller companies and value companies. It tends to be the companies that pay dividends are more mature, and the total return tends to be a little bit lower. The problem with dividend-paying stocks, besides the concentration in a certain kind of company, is that you have no choice. They declare a dividend. Whether you want the income or not, you pay tax on it. That's Warren Buffett. 
He's exactly. Like, I, I don't. I'm not get, look, Berkshire. I'm not. I don't want to give dividends. Why and, would I want to do that? And they have, I don't want stocks that have dividends because I want to control the distribution when I choose to, when I need the capital, when I'm ready to pay tax. Not necessarily having the company dictate when I get my income right. or when I pay tax. And the flip side of that, as you already mentioned, is when a dividend is paid, the stock price goes down. So it's it's kind of same same, right? I'd rather I'd rather be in control. And that's what Warren Buffett learned years ago, and that's why his company Berkshire Hathaway does not declare dividends all right I got we got time for one more bud okay okay can I defer distributions from an annuity in my 401k huh now that I'm 70 years and six months old is it necessary for me to receive distributions from a 25 year old annuity that is held in my 401k someone told me that I would have a required minimum distribution once I reach this age the annuity is worth hundred ninety six thousand dollars but I would like to de- defer any distributions can the distributions be deferred without penalty when the distribution is made? Is this taxed at ordinary income rates? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Well, it doesn't really say if there's other assets. But in, it's in, in a 401 401k. K. Yeah. True. Uh, let's say the 401k is just one big annuity. If Maybe it, it's Tia Crefum. Probably, it's probably Tia. Yeah. Probably if, 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 a but that would be a yeah, 403b. It would, but, let, <laughs> but so it, cut, we'll go down. say 70 years and six months for yeah, 70 and a half. It's very precise. It's yeah. very precise. So, I mean, I guess if you only have one asset in your 401k or whatever it is, yes, at 70 and a half, you have to take distributions. There's no way around that. Now, I, I guess where, I, where my mind went, Joe, was if there was other assets in the 401k, you could do the required minimum distribution on the other assets and just let the annuity go. Here's what I get out of this, is that he doesn't want to take any distributions. He, he wants to defer it. He doesn't want to pay the income. So can the distributions be deferred without penalty? No. Yeah, you have to take you the required have to take minimum the distributions. distributions. So let's say you have an annuity. An annuity grows tax deferred if it's outside of a uh, 401k plan or inside the shell of a, an IRA or 401k plan. So it doesn't matter. You, you got do, you got tax deferred there. If it's in a 401k plan, you have to take the distribution. You have to pay tax on that distribution. There is no more deferment from that. You have to pay ordinary income tax based on a factor on publication 590. Um, and so it once you turn 70 and a half, there is no way around it. So you have to take the distribution, take it out of the 401k account. Um, if it was in an IRA, then there would be a, maybe a different story. If he had another IRA, he could take the full required distribution. Um, it, it, the, the RMD is based on the entire amounts of retirement accounts that you have, and it's a percentage. But with 401k plans, you have to take the distribution out of each 401k if you had multiple. But if you had multiple IRAs, you could take one distribution out of one IRA that would cover the RMD for all all your IRAs, but that's not true for 401ks. So the IRS looks at, at, at IRAs as a singular IRA, even though you have 10 different ones. Right. 401ks, not so much. In fact, they each consider them all separate. Now, you can roll generally an old 401k into a new existing one if you're currently employed, if your plan allows it, or you can roll it to your own IRA. And I will say this, when you do take the distribution, yes, it's taxed at ordinary income. You've got an ordinary tax deduction going in, so you have to pay ordinary income taxes when it comes out. Hey, we got to get out of here. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. For Big L Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. So to recap today's show, stocks that pay or don't pay dividends both have their pros and cons. It just depends on what you're looking for. Liquid emergency savings, fully funding retirement accounts, and considering home equity are ways to survive retirement income shocks. A couple other suggestions would be funding a health savings account and looking at long-term care expenses. And you should probably only consider opening a nightclub in retirement if you're Aretha Franklin. 
I can respect that idea. Special thanks to our guest, Robert Posen, for giving us his thoughts on fixing both retirement savings and Social Security. Learn more about Bob, his ideas, and his book, Extreme Productivity, at his website, bobposen.com. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, email us, info at purefinancial.com. Now listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. And don't forget, for your free financial assessment, just visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song, Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka, is licensed under a Creative Commons license.